In a world where we can access boundless information, find answers instantaneously, a world where remote learning has become a norm and corporate-sponsored think tanks just keep popping up, do we still need education institutions? And if we do, then why? What purpose do they currently serve in today's society beyond lessons and lectures? Welcome to Illumin, where we explore some interesting issues and important questions in education. I'm Jacinda Eiler, Principal of Brisbane Girls Grammar School and your host. Professor Deborah Terry, Vice-Chancellor and President of the University of Queensland, is a highly experienced leader in the Australian university sector, recognised with an AO for her distinguished service to tertiary education. She's an internationally recognised scholar in the field of psychology and, perhaps unsurprisingly, holds several board and advisory positions. Professor Terry was the first woman VC of UQ. She commenced during COVID, a particularly tumultuous time for all universities. But Deb's childhood perhaps prepared her for change. She grew up in a Defence Force family, moved around quite a bit, boarded at Canberra Girls Grammar School. And her grandmother was a writer and strong role model in her life. She taught Deb that education and the pursuit of knowledge are gifts that should never be taken for granted. When we learn that Professor Terry is an avid reader, I've heard mention of Jane Austen, but also crime novels, it is no surprise that she has a deep interest in human behaviour and what drives it. Professor Terry has published on a wide range of topics, from language complexity and facial cues to social and national identity. And she has spoken a lot about the critical role of universities in ensuring there is hope for the future. Professor Terry, welcome to Illumine. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Professor Terry, we've heard a lot in recent decades about the university sector, and I have to say there have been some doomsday predictions about the impact of MOOCs and the demise of the old model. What do you think is the point of a university these days? And tell us how universities are having to adapt to assert and maintain their value and relevance in these changing times. Thank you, Jacinta. And it's a really interesting question. And we are hearing, I think, more and more, you know, what's the value, what's the place of universities in contemporary society? And it's in some ways, for me, a very perplexing question because I think we all intuitively understand that universities are strong cornerstones of civil societies and they've been so for centuries. We're not frozen in time, we continually change and in fact we've stood the test of time because we are adaptive. But for me I think we need to keep going back to the fact that our value, our relevance stems from our mission, our mission which is absolutely uh, to deliver for the public good, and that's more important than it has ever been. It's about advancing and disseminating knowledge and enriching the communities in which we're embedded. And I often talk about it, you know, in terms of modern society, we produce the skilled graduates who are going to be essential for our economic and social prosperity. We're a major and critical plank of a vibrant innovation ecosystem. And in so many ways, we enrich our communities, whether it's through our cultural assets, our public lectures, our environments that encourage debate, exchange of ideas, etc. So it really comes back 
to the public good. We are very adaptive institutions and our society needs us even more than ever compelling case and particularly when you're talking about delivering for the public good because of course throughout this time of pandemic the role of the institutions in our society have certainly been so important whether that's hospitals, schools and of course universities with their life-saving research that's led to the development of vaccines. Many university researchers have been we've seen quite prominent in fact in the media and they've been frequently approached for their insights into this virus as society has of course sought answers and to better understand what has been bearing down on us. Can you tell me a little bit more about whether we need them? I think you've said that perhaps more than ever and do they have a particular role in today's digital world? Just talking about the COVID environment, last year I had the great privilege of being asked to address the press club and it was when I was chair of Universities Australia and my speech was precisely on this topic. We were one year into the pandemic and one of my key themes was how much Australia had relied on our scientists and our medical experts. So in the first year of the pandemic alone, the Icentia Media Monitoring Group indicated that university-based experts were interviewed or quoted 67,000 times, which is just phenomenal. And they were out there sharing their expertise, the epidemiologists, the virologists, the immunologists, our public health experts. Our vaccine team at UQ was, you know, working night and day on their vaccine, but they were also out sharing their knowledge, sharing their expertise, trying to help the community, the government, industry deal with the pandemic. What does this mean? What will it mean into the future? And, you know, at the same time, we've been so critical to our future, our recovery. And, you know, much of the discourse, particularly in the last year and at the moment, is around post-pandemic recovery. What does our society look like? What do we need to focus on? And, of course, you know, there's broad flow on economic and social benefits that come through what large institutions do through our international education, through educating the graduates we need for the future, through our, our research. So it's been a challenging time for all sectors of society, but I think what it has reminded Australians is just how important institutions are, how important it is that we do have expertise that we can access, that we can rely on and that we can trust. And, you know, I think the history books will look back and say that Australia managed this pandemic well. Incredibly difficult situation. But the fact that we could draw on that expertise assisted hugely. When we think about the students that you refer to and young people who are often the primary consumers of the education that is brought forth in tertiary institutions, thinking about them in particular, what are some of the most valuable lessons that they learn while at university beyond, of course, the text and the lecture hall? I know you often refer to Einstein's notion that we train minds to think. And in a similar way, I often talk about our role as teaching students how to learn, that when they graduate from our, whatever their courses are at university, we hope that we've set them up for lifelong learning. But I think, you know, if you unpack this a bit, of course, the courses are incredibly important, but what a great education gives all of us, certainly gave me and will give our current students and future students, is that capacity to kind of think differently, to debate the big challenges, willingness to embrace new ideas, 
and I think that courage to, to solve problems. I mean, I had the great privilege of studying at ANU and, you know, I still remember the days we thought we were solving the world's big issues over lunch in the refec. I mean, that's what university education is about. That's what the university experience. But it's also the environments that help us find our place in the world. What are our values? We come out of school, you know, incredibly well prepared, so many of our young people, but what do we stand for? What are our values? What's important to us? Where do we want to make our mark into the future? But of course, there are also environments where we, we help build social capital. Many of our networks, our friendships, come from our university times and they last a lifetime. So, you know, universities deliver it, I think, at, at all levels. That is a beautiful link to the next question. Yes, we all have those wonderful friends from university. We sat around, wasted a bit too much time. We did, we did yes. Um, and and uh, missed a lecture or two on occasion. And definitely, you know, that passion you talk about and that sharing of ideas and the sitting in the refect with some of your nearest and dearest intellectual jousting going on. I guess my next question refers to something that Howard Gardner out of Harvard often writes about and, and talks about, and he describes what it's like to live and interact in a scholarly community immersed in ideas. And his argument would be that a school, a university, is of course also a community of human beings. I think the notion of a scholarly community is often, if you go back to early writings about universities, that's how they were described, and of course our residential colleges and, and, and UQ, certainly, you know, we're, we're very proud of our 10 residential colleges. They're scholarly communities within a very large scholarly community. But I think it is absolutely important in those communities. Of course, we can be part of much broader communities now through our digital means, through virtual interaction. But fundamentally, humans are social humans are social beings and we know that from so much evidence. Much of actually uh, this research is currently coming out of UQ, how important social interactions and social contact are to our well-being, our health, our sense of worth and, and purpose. So for me, presence is absolutely essential. We know from the pandemic we can do much more than we did before online and we all had to change very quickly and I think, you know, largely we were successful and we know how important slick access to high quality digital material is and we know that from our students they love our campus experience but they're also looking for some of those things that they know they would much rather work on at home or access at home they want to be able to do it seamlessly they don't want to go into multiple different systems with multiple different passwords and they need to be high quality but there is a critical place for that humanising face-to-face contact because that's the scholarly community where we debate ideas, where we get a sense of what we stand for, where we question, we're in a position where we can question other views of others and get a sense of where they're coming from, where you build up empathy, that capacity to take the position of another person, that's fundamentally human, fundamentally And that happens in those social interactions that may be unscripted, that may be completely on the side of other meetings, but they are essential. And we know in in, in a university environment, those soft skills, those transferable skills are obviously so important to our, our graduates' outcomes and their success into the future. And it is all about being able to communicate, collaborate, 
being empathic, understanding the views of others, and that's what happens in scholarly communities. I guess a little bit along the same lines, if we turn to Martha Nussbaum, who's a well-known philosopher out of the University of Chicago, she has argued, as many others have, that those earliest years in education should be based primarily primarily on exploration, understanding things in great depth and developing logical, critical thinking. Uh, It's a warning against too narrow a focus on technical competence. Professor Terry, where do you see the balance in universities these days between learning how to think or training our minds to think, as you have said yourself, and the important work of preparing people for roles and vocations that actually require that technical expertise? It's a really good question and certainly something that I reflect on quite a lot. And I'm always drawn to our former chief scientist, Alan Finkel, you know, he, he was very committed to this idea, and I completely agree with him, and others have talked about it, that essentially employers today are looking for what are called T-shaped workers. And by T-shaped, he meant that people entering the workforce actually do need to have that kind of fundamental structure of deep disciplinary knowledge. You've got to have expertise in your area. You've got to understand your field of of endeavour. You've got to understand your field of study. And his view was very much that that discipline gives you the structure while you grow. And then you have the capacity to branch out. And so for us at university, it is about that deep disciplinary knowledge and expertise, but also those broad skills But I think you can go too far the other way. And he he often quotes, and I think it was a focus group that he was part of or being made aware of, where somebody quite appropriately pointed out, you know, what's what's the point of being able to collaborate if you've got nothing to contribute? Now, your capacity to contribute comes from that deep disciplinary knowledge, expertise in a particular area. That gives you confidence. But then we need to combine that and get that right balance between that deep disciplinary knowledge and those skills with those broader transferable qualities, creativity, analytical skills, critical thinking, entrepreneurial mindsets. But you can't go too far one way or the other. So I I really like T-shape, that depth but breadth at the same time. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I have to say that's the approach to education at Girls Grammar. Mm. It's very much about a faculty-based learning of expertise, mm. deep knowledge and passion, quite frankly, in particular areas, but then learning those broader skills of collaboration are incredibly important in order to benefit from all of that expertise collectively mm. as you go through. Now, of course, it's such fascinating times in education and, and in universities. And I guess my next question is, if we're talking about university education that is intended to develop this ability to think, to be exposed to diverse views and acquire these wonderful skills of logic and reason. What do you make of microaggression and cancel culture? And what, if any, impact do you see it having on the intellectual life of universities? It's a a really important question. And these are obviously societal trends that we have to be very, very conscious of, and we are. But what we've got to be careful of is that they don't, or we can't let them get in the way of what is so critical, the open debate, the freedom of thought and expression, academic freedom on our campuses. They are essential. And if we go back to our responsibility to deliver the learning community that our students are looking for, it is about promoting debate and discussion. It has to be vigorous. 
it has to be respectful. We often call it disagreeing well, which mm. is a, a well-known expression. Yes, we've got to learn how to debate and learn how to disagree respectfully, but we have to have the environment where that occurs because how do you develop your own views and your own thoughts on key issues without being able to have a debate and to hear different views? I think UK's Equality and Human Rights Commission put a lot of work into this and uh, Robert French when he was doing his big review of academic freedom and freedom of expression in Australian universities referred to it and it's putting in place those mechanisms that can ensure on our campuses that a wide range of viewpoints are heard and you know we do have to have guidelines that kind of set out our principles for respectful debate we do need to train our staff and our students our student leaders in how do you facilitate effective debate. We'll often bring in independent uh, chairs or moderators. We'll often, and I'm quite, you know, when I know there's going to be a set of issues being raised in a debate that are on one side of an issue, what I'll say is, all right, let's have that seminar this week. Next week, we're going to hear from an expert on the other side. And let's mm. bring together panels to debate these issues rather than shutting down the discussion. I think there's some principles that allow that to occur but we've got the responsibility to do it, so we absolutely have to do it. It's a last bastion sometimes where you hope that there's freedom of thought and expression, and sometimes it requires, I imagine, resisting some pretty powerful and often dominant public opinion pieces out there. So I guess my final question around this series of questions about the purpose of university is, is that still possible? Is that still true? Yeah, I think it is true, and I think it has to be true. I've mentioned Robert French, former Chief Justice, and he was asked by the government in 2018 to look at the practices and policies adopted by Australian universities to promote and protect freedom of speech and intellectual inquiry. He found no evidence of a freedom of speech crisis, which was good, and he was quite clear on that, but what he did find, that there was broad discretionary powers within universities to enforce policies and procedures. And, and his view was that they needed to be tightened up and he proposed what's called a model code that sort of sits above all of our policies and procedures for free speech and academic freedom on campus, that it becomes a defining set of principles that, that were guided by. And this was really important work. I mean, and, and institutions across the country certainly have responded to the findings. But his core point, which I really agree with, yes, it was a really useful exercise and important changes, but you have to have a culture of academic freedom, of intellectual freedom, of debate, that it is encouraged, it's talked about, it's talked about as a defining feature of the university, because that's going to be the most protective mechanism we have, that we have the right culture. Got to have the policies and procedures in place, but we've got to have that culture where this is encouraged. It's something we celebrate, we talk to students about why it's important, and quite frankly, we talk to students about that's what they should expect out of their university experience. That's where you do have the time to really hone in on, as I said before, your own values and your own sense of what you want to contribute. A very important part of university life. As you say, a very exciting part to have that cultural intellectual freedom as a lived experience in your university days. 
You have been listening to Illumin, a podcast by Brisbane Girls Grammar School. Music for this podcast was written and performed by former Year 12 student Alicia Seng. To ensure you never miss an episode of Illumin, please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. And to learn more about the school, visit the website at www.bggs.qld.edu.au.